Katie, can I start today's episode like we used to start school when I was at primary school? Go on. Good morning, Europeans. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> I don't like that. It's weird. Did you do that as well? I went to a very impolite Essex primary school. So no, we didn't do that. But anyway, hello, everyone. Dominic, apparently some stuff happened in our home country this week. Really? Yeah. Oh, I've not been taking notice. Sort of government meltdown-y type of thing regarding Britain's relationship with Europe, you might have noticed. But honestly, I think the most British thing possible would be to just repress the whole thing and not talk about it. We're really good at that as a nation. And we did make a solemn promise when we started making this podcast that we were going to talk about everything that wasn't Brexit. So we're not going to stop that now. Welcome to a gloriously Brexit-free half an hour. Yeah, it rather has taken over the news cycle. But it's also been an important week because there's been another big centenary, Katie. Did you notice? Centenary? What one? (laughs) It's been the 100th anniversary of Latvia. It's making me think that actually we should have a new segment. We should have like Centenary Corner. And maybe this is just an opportunity for a new jingle. Yes, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Happy birthday, Latvia to start with. And let's hope that um, their celebrations aren't anything like as alarming as Poland's were last week. Yeah, not great. Yeah, it wasn't great, was it? I mean, some people like to celebrate their birthdays with big far-right rallies with loads of flares. That's all right, isn't it? No. (laughs) No, no. No, it's not. (laughs) Anyway, um, apart from what's been going on in Europe, what's been going on in Dominic land this week? Yeah, I've been in London for a bit. Now I'm back in Amsterdam. You know, I've just been trying to um, compete with you for the amount of times I can use the Eurostar between London and and the continent. Oh, you've been using the fancy new uh, London straight to Amsterdam route, haven't you? That's jazzy. I have. And it is very good, except it does get rather slow once you reach the Netherlands. Oh. I don't know whether that's just my bad luck or whether it is something to do with the railways. An interesting investigation, what we should do. Um, this is not an interesting <laughs> investigation. And it's probably not very interesting for listeners to How listen many to. But, just um, maybe off. you've had more interesting things happen. Um, I've had quite a nice week. Went to see my friend's band play yesterday. And what else is happening? It's Beaujolais Nouveau season in France at the moment, which is always fun. Everyone's drinking a lot of quite cheap wine. And it's this whole like big marketing gimmick, a bit kind of like France's answer to Valentine's Day. There's like posters everywhere saying Beaujolais Nouveau and you should buy it. And it's not even that nice, but buy it anyway. Uh, It's a consumer event. It's like Black Friday or something like that. And it's been a very lovely, crispy day. So I went for a lovely, crispy walk and ate a crispy crepe. Oh, how nice. Well, you've had a much more exciting week than me. uh, But we do have a very exciting episode ahead. And maybe that will cheer up my week. And we've got a bumper episode. Two great guests talking about two completely different things. First, we'll be calling up Marton Barzer, the man behind TechAlter, a YouTube channel which makes video essays about the past, present and future of consumer technology for his many millions of viewers. He's kind of famous. Um, We're going to be talking to him about the state of tech in Europe. And then... And then we're going to be talking to Sarah Donnelly. She's a comedian based in Paris who's just had the uh, very dubious pleasure of opening for Louis C.K. as he tries to make his comeback after confessing to a whole bunch of sexual misconduct. So that is all coming up, but first... (laughs) 
Who has had a good week, Dominic? It has been a good week for Nikola Gruevski, the former Prime Minister of Macedonia, who dramatically escaped from the jaws of justice to seek asylum in the arms of Hungary's Viktor Orban. Jaws and the arms. That's very confusing. Yeah. And actually, uh, yeah, probably not literally in his arms as far as I'm aware, but who knows? Um, It's only two years since the scandal-ridden Gruevski was forced to step down as prime minister after 10 years at the helm of his country. He was facing five criminal cases in his home country and... Back in May, he was found guilty of the first, a corruption charge that centred around the purchase of a bulletproof Mercedes-Benz. As you do. For which he was sentenced to jail for two years. He was meant to show up for jail um, at the beginning of his sentence on the 9th of November. But the next the authorities heard of him was a Facebook post some days later in which he said that he'd fled to Budapest and was seeking asylum. He claims that the charges are all politically motivated. Mm. Now, there is rather an irony in the fact that Orban is considering this asylum request whilst governing as the most anti-immigration leader the EU has basically ever seen. (laughs) Orban built a wall or a fence along the southern border of Hungary. Uh, He's ruled that anyone seeking asylum must stay in a guarded transit zone whilst their application is being processed. And he's also announced that Hungary would not accept any asylum requests from a citizen of a designated safe country. Of course, Grevsky is not being kept in one of those migrant transit zones and his asylum request is being considered, but it does create a bit of a dilemma for Orban, who is already at loggerheads with the EU. He's always been strongly aligned to Grevsky and they certainly share some pretty eye-catching opinions. For example, uh, their conspiracy theory fueled hatred of George Soros is just one of them. Mm. According to allies of Grevsky, it was indeed Soros who orchestrated all these criminal charges against Grevsky. Oh, was it? Like, personally? Yeah, amazing. Where does he find the time, eh? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Other charges that were coming down the pipeline included accusations of vote rigging, bribery, plus a dash of wiretapping. All stuff that's great for democracy. Um, And it seems that his getaway was rather easier than one would have hoped for someone who was avoiding a jail sentence. He even used his own ID at one of the borders and wasn't stopped. In fact, the international arrest warrant was apparently only issued after he declared his arrival in Budapest. So there's something a bit weird that happened there. And Anna Petruseva, who's writing in Balkan Insight, mentions a theory during the rounds that it is in fact perhaps better for the current social democratic government to let Nicola escape detention in this kind of seemingly cowardly way, leaving his supporters in disarray instead of allowing him to become a martyr in Macedonian prison and eventually stage some kind of political comeback. Ooh. So that the theory is that they might have turned a blind eye or something. Yeah, that is a theory. There's no evidence for it. But um, it is suspicious why he managed to get away so easily. And Petru Seva points out that at the very least, it certainly adds to a feeling of incompetence around some of the government institutions, uh, particularly around the police. So what happens now? Nobody knows. Apparently he was transported from Albania in a Hungarian embassy car. So the Hungarians are certainly considering his application seriously. Um, But for now, it's been a good week for Grevsky and we'll keep an eye out to see where this all ends up. This is murky AF, as the kids would say. Is that what the kids would say? Maybe about five years ago. I don't know. Uh, 
no, it's it's um, a really interesting one. We haven't had like a big morally dubious asylum case since Julian Assange walked into the Ecuadorian embassy in London. That feels like ages ago. Yeah, although there's been big movement in that case as well this week. Haven't we found out about some actual uh, charges being pressed against him in America? Yeah. Sealed charges even. So another one to watch. But Assange isn't getting a bad week slot, is he? Who is? Uh, underwear is getting bad week this week, Dominic. It has been a bad week for women's underwear in Ireland. Pants have been strung up at feminist protests all over the place, all over Ireland. Tied to placards, even held up in Parliament this week, all because of a rape trial in the Irish city of Cork. A 17-year-old woman had accused a man of raping her. And in his trial, the man's defence lawyer, who was a woman actually, suggested that the accuser in this case was clearly, quote, open to meeting someone because, another quote, you have to look at the way she was dressed. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. Oh, dear. You don't need me to tell you that whatever a woman is wearing, it is not an invitation to rape her. That should be quite obvious by now. The man in the trial was acquitted, but his lawyer's comment has blown up in Ireland this week into this kind of mini protest movement. Women brandishing underwear to say loud and clear that blaming sexual assaults on women's fashion choices is completely unacceptable. In Cork, women came out to lay pants all over the steps of the courthouse. In in Belfast and Northern Ireland, women came out and chanted, my little black dress does not mean yes. And in the Parliament in Dublin, Ruth Coppinger, who's a left-wing member of the Doyle, the Irish Parliament, she brandished a thong while giving a speech calling for an end to victim blaming. And loads of Irish women have been posting pictures of their underwear online under the hashtag, this is not consent. The upshot of all of this, apart from Ireland having a very timely national conversation, is that Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar has said that the government will look at how rape victims get treated in court. So that's one good thing, at least. I think it's clearly a bad week in terms of a rape victim having their underwear brought up as a factor behind their rape. Definitely. That's bad. That must have been horribly upsetting. So a bad week in court, but um, perhaps a good week for the strong Irish reaction from people willing to share pictures of their pants on social media. Go Irish women. I was in Cork a few months ago. It's a great place. Hang out with uh, babies. Yeah, baby twin cousins uh, who are lovely. And I'm pleased to hear that the people of Cork are rising up against this ridiculousness. Katie, can you name any big European tech giants? Uh, Skype. The thing that we're using right now to record, invented by a Swede and a Dane and a bunch of Estonian coders. Yeah, I'm not sure it counts as a tech giant. And also not so European anymore. And also it's owned by Microsoft, yeah. Yeah, bought by Microsoft in 2011. Your answer was meant to be no, because there aren't any. Okay, no, because there aren't any. There aren't any. And why is that? Why do we have nothing to compete with the Silicon Valley of USA and Shenzhen of China? It is a bit sad. If I look around my desk right now, I'm talking to you on my work laptop, which is made by a Japanese company. And I've got my mobile phone over there, which is made by a certain evil American giant. Yeah, none of this stuff was made in Europe, which is fine. I mean, like we live in a globalized world. But um, as Martin is going to explain to us in a, in a minute, there was a time not that long ago when we might have been surrounded by, you know, like phones made by Nokia and Siemens and TVs made by Philips and stuff like that. Where have they gone, Dominic? I don't know. We need Martin to help us. And he is the perfect person for us to talk to because he fronts Tech Alter, which is this great YouTube channel that looks at everything to do with technology. 
Uh, and he is himself a Hungarian living in Germany. So he has a very European perspective on these things. We are about to call him up on Skype, though, this old European tech company. So we can feel a bit of European pride as we add him to this call. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Could you start off by just introducing yourself and telling us a bit about Tech Alter? Sure. Uh, I'm Martin. I run a YouTube channel called Tech Altar. It is a channel about consumer tech, uh, so mostly smartphones, uh, computers, whatever we use in daily life that is technology. And I do review stuff. This is a classic uh, tech YouTube thing to do. But I like to specialize in kind of analyzing industry trends and what the big picture is. And I've been doing it full time for maybe the last uh, five months, six months, something like that. World's funnest job. <laughs> it's my dream to become a YouTuber. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> the video that caught our eye was one about European tech giants, like why we don't have, why there is no European answer to Facebook or, or Google and why the big players like Nokia and Siemens that were once around kind of stopped being such massive players now. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a kind of rundown of where you think the European tech giants went. Sure. And just to be clear, I said this in the video, but people didn't completely take it seriously. Obviously, tech is a huge field and I am mostly only concerned with consumer tech. So actually, Europe is fairly strong in a lot of fields that I am not very interested in, which is uh, B2B software. We have huge companies like SAP. There's a lot of industrial stuff and machinery, especially in Germany. Uh, but I think where, where Europe has certainly fallen behind is consumer electronics, for one. So if you think about smartphones, uh, I think the only major European tech company that we had was Nokia. And they are making a comeback. I made a separate video about that as well. I, I'm very excited about that. But I mean, for a while, they were completely gone and Europe was completely off the map with arguably the most important product category in tech, which is the smartphone. And also consumer facing software products, especially platforms such as operating systems. They're all made by mostly American companies or huge uh, Internet platforms like search engines and social media platforms. Uh, those are mostly made by American companies or Chinese companies as well. And I guess the question is uh, where we've all gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd say it's a, the result of a very long process because we, we used to have a lot of consumer tech companies. Uh, but I think Europe has generally been very slow to adopt some of the key technologies. We've kind of overslept the smartphone revolution. Generally, Europe was very slow to adopt the startup model that America pioneered and then China rapidly implemented. And, and I think in some cases even perfected. We don't have as many venture capitalists, as many people who want Want to found companies. That means that new tech is emerging at a way slower pace in Europe than it is in those uh, countries. We've obviously gotten rid of most of our manufacturing, except for maybe the very high-end stuff, which means that uh, like a huge amount of skills have moved out of Europe. There are some success stories, though, aren't there, from Europe, even over the last kind of 10 years? There are a few success stories. I think arguably the most recognizable success story might be Spotify. So that's a Swedish company. Nokia, as a smartphone brand, is making a comeback. They're actually in the top five in Europe again, even though they've just restarted making phones a year or two ago. I'm using a Nokia phone and they're pretty good. Really? Yeah. Nokia is making a big comeback. Is that mainly because of nostalgia? Yeah, like people yearning for the old days and playing <laughs> Snake on their 3210s. What a time. <laughs> uh, 
I would argue that with Nokia, definitely a huge factor is nostalgia. Uh, they actually make really good phones as well. So there's that. I feel like this is kind of the time is ripe for a European big tech company to emerge. What with like the Cambridge Analytica scandal, knocking Facebook sideways and the various awkward revelations coming out of Google about them tracking our movements. Is there a hub where this company could come out of? Is there a Silicon Valley in Europe that's starting to emerge? Or is that a fantasy? I don't think Europe will have a Silicon Valley-like place the way the US does or, or the way China does. I feel like there are many smaller hubs in Europe, which is both a benefit and a disadvantage. But I think you are right that as consumers are becoming more aware in general on a global scale about uh, privacy issues and uh, environmental impact of technology and, and all these kinds of things, Europe has always been, I think, way more concerned with these aspects of technology than the rest of the world, which is why I think to some degree we've been way slower at adapting them because people are concerned about technology way more, the negative impacts about technology way more than lots of Americans or lots of Chinese people, for example. There is a trend in Europe also that is niche brands that focus on something like being ethical or, or being uh, environmentally friendly are, are actually quite strong. So in the, uh, there's a Dutch company called Fairphone. I had one. <laughs> very good. Didn't work out very well for you though, did it? No, I, actually both me and my husband had them and they uh, broke within a few months and they mm. didn't have the parts to fix them. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was... They were, you're probably about to say this, I think you said it in your video that they couldn't quite keep up the production with the demand and that yeah. counted for the phones and also for the individual parts that went wrong. So they were like, yeah, you'll have to wait four months for a part. <laughs> and that was a shame. Mm. But sorry, we inter I interrupted you. No, 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 absolutely. I, I actually talked about that in my, in my video. But yes, the trend is there that uh, European companies tend to take these niches more seriously. And as these niches are growing, products for people who, who care about one thing or the other, I think European companies might have an advantage there. But the question is always like, are, are niches big enough to create giants? And I think the answer is probably no. You're not going to become the next Apple by building a very environmentally friendly phone. And perhaps it'll be bought up by some big US tech company before we know it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's absolutely the, one of the problems that it's a very natural progression for tech companies to either go on the, the stock market at some point or be acquired by a big company or, or, or both. And the problem is that most tech companies who have enough money to acquire big successful tech companies are typically the five big ones from the US, Google, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, and Facebook or they're the three big ones from China. So the, the stakes are stacked against poor little old Europe. Um, <laughs> in terms of the industry in general, people talk about Berlin as quite a sort of startup friendly place these days. And I was wondering if it being tech friendly is partly why you've chosen to live there or is that really not related at all? Absolutely. There's also personal reasons involved. I, I speak German and we wanted to uh, move with my girlfriend to a country where we both feel good. And uh, I mean, speaking the language is a big benefit, uh, but I'm actually planning to launch my own startup soon. And Berlin being the startup hub that it is, amongst other things, were a huge, huge factor for that. Although, don't people talk about Germany as having surprisingly slow internet? <laughs> yeah, it's killing me. <laughs> Like, how are those things simultaneously possible that like Berlin could be this startup hub, but the internet is rubbish? I'm confused by many things in Germany. I, I, <laughs> I thought before moving to Germany that, you know, everyone says how efficient everything is and how 
everything is on time and everything just works. And I've, I've actually found the opposite to be quite true. I mean, I came from China before this. So if you want to have internet in China, you call the service provider and then like in three hours, they're there. Everything is very slow compared to that here in Berlin. Sounds like Paris. And actually, uh, <laughs> speaking of which, Emmanuel Macron, when he got into power, he wanted to make Paris into a kind of startup hub. And it is happening to some extent. We've got like the world's biggest startup accelerator here. Mm-hmm. But I get the impression that a lot of tech people would still probably be put off by French paperwork and the language barrier and stuff like that. For sure. To what extent do you think language is a factor? Like, is it more difficult to make a tech giant on a continent where we speak something like 30 languages? I think to make a global tech giant you can't really start in Europe I mean you can maybe like do a pilot in Europe but like by the time you roll something out to many European countries somebody in the US or China has replicated your idea and rolled it out all over the US and at that point you've lost you said in one of your videos that you felt that it was complicated regulation of the European Union is one of the reasons that tech has been somewhat stifled what kind of regulation complicates things for tech and do you think the regulation is reasonable there's lots of regulation that's reasonable there's lots of regulation that I think is not needed or or overbearing but in general I'm not against regulation the problem comes from if you have one place that has regulation and another place that doesn't have regulation, then eventually the company who doesn't have to follow this regulation will just produce innovation faster and they'll just squeeze out the ones that have to follow the regulations. As it is, you spend half of your engineering resources and design resources and whatever on complying and making your UI more complicated because you have to do it because the government requires it. Whereas in the US or wherever, you could spend much less of that time on that and you could spend it on improving your product. Yeah. I think you should protect the consumer. But the problem is if the others don't have to and you have to, then over time it becomes an uneven playing field, I'd say. I thought it was quite funny in your video, you um, pointed to Europe's legislation as like evidence of this kind of general inherent suspicion of technology is like the root of quite a lot of problems in society. (laughs) I just wondered if that was also something that's based on your personal experience of just living in Europe in general. Yeah, Germans in general, I've, I've realized since I've come here, I mean, this is uh, me just talking to people and and seeing what they say. But uh, I feel that they're super distrusting towards big tech companies and, you know, Facebook stealing their data and, and, and whatever. I've literally never met a single Chinese person who was concerned about uh, WeChat uh, processing their data, even though WeChat processes way more of their data. Yeah, but the, the mistrust is just way more significant here. It's based on the history, I guess, and Germany's experience of the Stasi and, and the Nazis before that. Like it's left a massive impact on how people view privacy. Absolutely. Listen, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Martin, and best of luck with your startup getting over all the massive hurdles that exist for <laughs> companies uh, operating in Europe. We look forward to you becoming the next Facebook Google and taken over the world. Do go over to Martin's YouTube channel and hit subscribe if you're interested in tech stuff. It's got a nice mix of videos about products and ones about uh, like the history of technology. And there's one I really liked in particular, looking at the history of unboxing videos on YouTube. One of my favorite things. When are we going to get famous enough to do unboxing? Tomorrow. It's going to happen. Okay, good. What would we unbox though? Oh, good question. Uh... European snacks, boxes of saucisson or something. I was thinking more like unboxing the ballot papers for the European elections.
millions. Sounds thrilling. Millions of hits are going to roll in. <laughs> they are. Um, I also just want to give a quick shout out to our listener, Martin Zimmerman. He's a tech guy in Slovenia. And it was him who suggested that we talk about this on the show and him who put us in touch with Martin. So thank you very much for that. And in general, we really, really welcome people coming up with ideas for stuff that we should be talking about on the show. And we've been getting some really nice ones like from Quaver in Dublin and Daniel in Germany and all over the place. So thank you very much and keep them coming. What are we going to do now? We are now going to add someone else to our Skype call, our wonderful European Skype, a comedian who had a very difficult decision to make last week when she was invited to open for the disgraced comedian Louis C.K., Sarah Donnelly is a Paris-based American comedian who was invited to open for her fellow American in what would be his first hour-long show since he took a break from comedy just under a year ago after serious allegations of sexual misconduct emerged. Sarah's comedy writing partner, Amber Minogue, wrote a very interesting comment piece in The Guardian this week about Sarah's dilemma of opening for the comedy world's bête noire. We found it very interesting and uh, wanted to speak to Sarah about her experience. Um, My good friend Sebastian Marks, who runs the New York Comedy Night here in Paris, which is the longest running English plateau, as we say in French, um, stand-up show in English, invited me. He called me and he was like, I need to talk to you. And I was like, oh God, what could this be? And I call him on the phone. He's like, okay, don't tell anyone, but Louis CK is coming to Paris and I'd like you to be on the lineup with him. And my first thought in my comedian brain was like, oh my gosh, wow, this is such an honor. And then reality kicked in and I was like, oh my God, no, no, this is very bad as well. Good. And, um, we had a nice conversation and I told him, honestly, I was like, I really have to think about this. I can't tell you yes or no right now. How long did you think about it? How long did it take you to come up with a decision? Well, um, my friend swore me to secrecy and I agreed, but then I immediately told my husband and (laughs) my writing partner, Amber Minogue, because I needed uh, both, you know, the moral support and I wanted their opinions as well. So I had a conversation with both of them about it. And um, Sebastian told me I need to get back to them quickly. So within 24 hours, I I told him, yes, I was going to do it. And kind of, can you talk us through what you're thinking and like the sort of emotional, moral dilemma that you had? How did you work through things? Really, you know, to have the opportunity to work with such a famous comedian is such a great moment in any comedian's career. And then to have it kind of, you know, this shining moment kind of be soiled by their past history and it makes you hesitate and think, oh, do I even want to be associated with this? And that was my thing. I, you know, I'm a feminist and I definitely denounce what he did I didn't want people to think that I was in any way supporting that or agreeing with him or trying to say, yeah, this isn't a big deal. Um, Let's all move on because I I don't think we should move on. And I think people are definitely not wanting to move on. The gig was also very well paid and I need money. (laughs) So it was kind of like, you know, there's the clear cut of work, like you've been offered a job and you've been offered a nice salary. And then, you know, this kind of dilemma is this something I want to be associated with? Is it going to potentially even hurt my career, my little fledgling baby career that I have? But ultimately, I kind of decided that why should I, another woman, the only woman who is asked to perform anyways, why should I fall victim yet again to something that he's done? I mean, obviously, this is I don't want to compare at all, but it just kind of seemed like unfair Ian Carmel, who's the head writer for The Late Late Show with James Corden, kind of wrote it out beautifully in a series of tweets and an interview with New York Magazine. And he said, 
you know, I don't expect kind of young comedians, meaning young in their career, to really kind of stand up and, and do anything. They have to get a paycheck. It's more people like me. And he's, I think, been the only comedian who said outright, I'm not performing on a lineup with him and I won't perform in a lineup with him. And he was like, we're the ones who are kind of closer to his level or on his level, his peers that should really be making these statements and calling him out. Um, it's on. It's our responsibility. And so I kind of felt like the burden in some ways was taken off my shoulders, but I still was very... Uh, even after doing the show, it still doesn't sit well with me. It's not something I like to talk about, you know, with pride per se. But ultimately, I thought this could be a good opportunity. And I said, you know, I'm going to do it and we'll see what happens. On the evening itself, you got up there, you did your set. And in your set, did you make any reference to the elephant in the room? I did. And that for me was the most important thing. I wrote tons of jokes trying to strike the right balance because you want to be funny, but uh, you don't be seeming like you're making fun of the victims. It was a hard note to strike and I didn't know what I was going to say. I kept throwing out premises and ideas until I got to the show and I was literally backstage and I just got, it came to me and I was like, what if I just kind of do an act out of the masturbation thing and kind of be like, ah, like you guys know that this is not good. <laughs> you know that he did that. Right. And that's basically what I said. And like, how did the crowd respond when you did that? <laughs> well, I said, I was like, I'm so surprised French people even know who Louis CK is. Cause you guys are, you know, he's the one who was like, ah, ah, ah. and I did the masturbation kind of jack off hand. And everyone just laughed and they laughed for quite a while. I think I just really popped that tension that was in the room and um, they responded well and people commented afterwards, they appreciated it. And then I followed up by saying, you know, cause I'm here to make that seem less. <laughs> it wasn't really much of saying anything particularly hilarious, just kind of mentioning it. It's like, I know this happened, you know, this happened. We all agree. It's icky. But that's kind of quite a serious point you make there as well. Did you feel like you were there as the, like, token woman to make his presence seem less icky? Totally. But I also know, I was asked to be on the show, one, I know it's not just because I'm a woman, but the fact I'm a woman definitely serves that lineup yeah. better. <laughs> right, of course. You were invited because you are a brilliant and talented comedian. <laughs> Um, yeah. I listened to a really interesting interview a couple of weeks back with uh, Noam Dorman, who's the owner of the New York comedy club that gave him a stage for like his comeback. And he was making this quite interesting argument that even people who serve jail time, like they don't get told you can never work again. Your punishment has to go on forever and ever. And he was arguing that there's something inhumane about that. And there has to come a point where people get rehabilitated, especially if they haven't been, you know, found criminally guilty of anything. I just wonder how you feel about that argument. Does he have the right to make a comeback of some kind at some point? And is that now? I think what's hard for people is because, you know, people are seeking, you know, they want some kind of justice. They want some kind of punishment to be served. And we're all kind of grappling, like, what can that be? And whether that's right or wrong, I think that's what people are feeling. I think he is entitled to do stand-up comedy again. And obviously the same thing that the owner of the comedy seller said, you know, there is an audience that wants to see him. So I would just like to see him address it in a better way. He kind of starts off his set saying, how have y'all's year been? And then he mentions how he, he lost 35 million in an hour. He referred to it later in his set saying he called it a bit of a PR problem. And, you know, I have to say, I still think that is a huge hole in his uh, quote-unquote comeback. Did the other comedians that were um, in the uh, opening acts, did anyone else refer to the scandal or was it only you? Uh, no, I believe I was the only one. 
Interesting. <laughs> That's why I felt like I had such a responsibility being the woman, you know, having those extra kind of critical eye on you. Um. Yeah, I mean, it can be sometimes frustrating, I think, that feminists and generally progressive people get held to a higher standard in everything. Uh, yeah, do you find that a burden? Typically, no. This is the first time it's really been called... I, you know, I've been called out. My friends have been really supportive. I know I've got a couple people in my circle who, you know, aren't happy with it, but it's also kind of like, you can't make everyone happy. And no. so, and I am like, if you don't agree, that's okay. <laughs> this is just one small part of my career and I'm hoping there'll be many more things to talk about. <laughs> well, there definitely will. And actually on that note, I wondered if you could maybe cheer us up after all this talk of men doing terrible things <laughs> and and uh, and tell us about the comedy show that you're doing in Paris, which is about being a mum to a French kid. Yeah, I have a show in Paris. It's called Becoming Mammal. It's about having a French baby when you are not French. I'm American, if you can tell by my voice by this point. And I wrote it with my writing partner, Amber Minogue. We like to say it's not just for moms. Some people think, oh, I don't have kids. It's not for me. But it's really just about two, she's English, I'm American, two expats just navigating through this very interesting world of becoming a parent in a different culture, in a different language. So we like to say we had the ultimate expat experience of birthing a French person. We also have a podcast under the same name, and we have tried to go around and interview mammals in Paris and see what they're up to. And yeah, if you're not in Paris, you can have a listen. And we just kind of talk about real motherhood. And we just like to say we're comedians who also have kids and a podcast and a comedy show. We're by no means parenting experts. If anything, just don't <laughs> take our advice about anything. <laughs> Now, when I'm looking for a happy ending, I usually search for something in which someone or something benefits in a nice or funny or surprising way. In this week's story, I honestly don't know if anyone involved comes out better or happier apart from us, the onlookers. Because, dear listeners, this is a story about the power of farting. And in particular, the power of farting to distract an opponent during a very important sporting event. Now, the sporting event in question is the Grand Slam of Darts, which took place in Wolverhampton last week. The two-time Scottish world champion, Gary Anderson, won his quarter-final match against the Dutchman, Wesley Harms, by a healthy margin of 10-2. to two. This was a very disappointing result for the Dutchman, and in his post-match interview, he blamed his poor performance on a fragrant smell that had been left by his competitor. <laughs> He then later said to the Dutch TV station RTL, it'll take me two nights to lose this smell from my nose. <laughs> He's a trooper. Um, now, Anderson, understandably, was not happy about this allegation and said that he'd thought it was Harms the Dutchman who'd been producing said farts. Harms then retorted, saying, if the boy, Anderson, thinks I've farted, he's a thousand and ten percent wrong. Wow. I know, that's very wrong. He went on, I swear on my children's lives that it was not my fault. I had a bad stomach once on stage before and admitted it. So I'm not going <laughs> to lie about farting on stage. So sorry, this has come up before. This is like a regular thing in darts. Apparently, yeah. This isn't the first time farting has been involved. But there's one more retort. Anderson came back with a slightly more graphic description as follows. It definitely came from the table side and it was eggs. Rotten <laughs> eggs, but not from me. 
Every time I walked past, there was a waft of rotten eggs. So that's why I was thinking it was him. It definitely wasn't me. Oh, I love it when people blame each other for bad smells. It's great, isn't it? And I'm afraid this is where the story ends. Uh, It's all I've got. No ending actually at all that leaves anyone happy. But some really marvellous quotes that I hope will leave you lovely listeners with a spring in your step and a renewed vigour. I imagine we'll never know the true answer to whether there was actually any strategic farting. Um, We'll just have to learn to be happy with the unknown. Do you think that's used as a strategy in other sports or just arts? Um... Why not snooker or something? Or tennis? Tennis, you're quite far away from them. Have you ever seen tennis, Katie? <laughs> that would be very powerful. <laughs> um, oh, God. Yeah, maybe some other sports. I, there aren't that many other sports where you have to like stand in exactly the same place, are there? Curling, maybe? We should get those uh, the Finnish curling team back on to ask if that's ever happening. Like, we're not going to do that. This used to be a classy podcast. How has it come to this? To be fair, my happy ending segment has never been that classy. Also true. Next week, if the world is still here... We'll be back again, hanging out with more interesting guests from around the continent. In the meantime, you can hit us up all over the internet. Where, Dominic? On Twitter, at Europeans Pod. Insta, Europeans Podcast. Facebook, the Europeans Podcast. And email europeanspodcast at gmail.com. And why did you say if the world is still here? I just feel like there's a general sense of chaos and decay hanging about. A, a bit like a, a fart at a darts match. <laughs> Um, well, I think you've just undone all the good of my happy ending. So thank you for Sorry. bringing it back to it that must not be named. I wasn't necessarily talking about that, just like the world at large, you know. Well, we'll see about that. We may be back next week or we may not, according to Katie. That was a very nihilist ending and I apologise. No, everything's going to be fine. We'll be back next Tuesday, as always. Ta-ra for now. Have a great week, everyone. Steer clear of bad smells and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.